This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. My task today is to make some observations about the book of Genesis. In a few minutes, I'm going to hand you a text, and we're going to read uh, a little bit from the book. And uh, in the process of doing so, to make some observations about the Hebrew Bible, the Bible considered sacred by the Jewish tradition, keeping in mind that what's sacred for Jews overlaps with, but is different from what is sacred for, for Christians. Christian Bible is somewhat different. And in the process of doing that, we'll reflect a little bit on the question of how a college student, or for that matter, any educated person, might read the Bible as part of a liberal, general, as a general liberal arts education. Now, my assumption here is one cannot be an educated person without knowledge of the Bible, its content, its values, its influence throughout the ages. The Bible is the heart and soul of the spiritual heritage of the Jewish people, and it is at the same time the fountainhead of Christianity, which is the dominant religion of American culture. It is not only the center of our major religious traditions, it is also indispensable to comprehending much of the art and the literature that you will be studying here. What of the poetry of Emily Dickinson or the novels of Franz Kafka, or for that matter, the speeches of Abraham Lincoln and Martin Luther King? The precise words of the Bible, and equally important, the evolution, the interpretation, the development of those words touches every aspect of our culture. Now, a good place to start where we're starting is the book of, uh, of Genesis. Um, and. Uh, What's good about the book of Genesis is we all have some familiarity with it. Uh, we know the creation story. We know the story of the Tower of Babel. We know the story of Noah's Ark. Now, true, the book of Genesis is often identified with stories that are told to children. Some people think it was written for the entertainment of children. But of course, it is not a book of children's stories. It's a volume dealing with the ultimate profound problems of humankind. And my hope is to reflect on what it means to have a mature understanding of this book rather than see it as simply a collection of mildly interesting uh, fairy tales. And in doing that, what should be our approach? Generally speaking, in a university, we should study the Bible and the book of Genesis exactly and precisely the way that we study any other book or any other document. At a university, we subject the Bible to the standards of philosophy and science and, and archaeology. We look at the Bible using all the authentic knowledge available to us from all the disciplines of modern knowledge. And in addition, we look at it using the words and the insights of the great interpreters in the past prior to the modern period. In this room, I assume, maybe rightly, maybe wrongly, we have people of traditional faith, we have people of liberal religious outlook, we have atheists, we have agnostics, we have militant unbelievers. Well, that's fine. I, personally, you know where I'm coming from, I'm a person of faith. But I believe that people of faith are not worried, or should not be worried, about suggesting what for them are sacred religious documents to the review of modern scholarship. In fact, it's essential <laughs> because I recognize the reality 
ever since the, the end of the Middle Ages, the impact of the Bible upon the lives of ordinary men and women has grown progressively weaker. In the long history of the Western world, no other generation has, in no other generation has the Bible been so little known and so little regarded and so spiritually obsolete as it is now. So what that means to me, the Bible cannot and must not be walled off from the modern world. To do so is to assure its continued decline. It has to confront our society and the complexities of the modern world on, on its own terms. Now, before we turn to the text, let's say a word about what is the Hebrew Bible. We talk about the Hebrew Bible. It's a document of about 1,000 pages, but it is really not a book at all. It's a library, uh, drawing from different times and from different philosophies. It consists of 39 books put together over a period of roughly 500 years. Now, the canon, the, the specific composition of the Hebrew Bible, we don't, know, we don't know exactly what the criteria were for selecting those 39 books that are in the Bible. Um, we do know it wasn't a top-down process, but a bottom-up process. That is, religious authorities recognized that certain books had become sacred because the people had made them sacred. Now, the Hebrew Bible is written in Hebrew, obviously, a little bit in Aramaic, which is a related language uh, related to Hebrew. It's the language probably that Jesus spoke, that Jesus did speak. Um, but mostly it's, it's overwhelmingly in Hebrew. Uh, it's divided into three parts. Torah, which is the five books of Moses, the Pentateuch, Nevi'im, the prophets, both the historical writings and the, and the, the, the great uh, prophets themselves and the Ketuvim, which are the writings, uh, um, which are the Psalms and, and so on. Now, all of this is sacred scripture for the Jewish tradition, but not in equal measure. The Torah, the Pentateuch, the beginning of the Bible, and the Genesis is, of course, the first book of the Pentateuch, has a higher measure of authority, and it is the foundational document of the Jewish religion by which I mean it is true in very substantial measure that all of Judaism involves the study and the interpretation of the Torah. Um, more broadly understood as well, but that in particular is at the very center. Now the Torah became the Torah, these five books, uh, 400 plus years before the time of Christ. Uh, that's when it was drawn together. To study the Torah today means to go back from the time the Torah was compiled uh, because the Hebrew Bible is about the past. And to consider the past means to look at archaeology and to, and to source criticism and to form criticism and cultural, her, uh, cultural hermeneutics. And what all those words simply mean, uh, there are different systems for studying the Bible. Now, source criticism is particularly important. According to traditional religious thinking, the Torah was dictated by God. It was written down by Moses. It came into being at one historical moment, the product of a, of a single author delivered at Mount Sinai. But source criticism asserts the composite nature of the biblical text and the existence of more or less defined strands within it. It says, in other words, the Torah is made up of different documents from different periods. And they were woven together 
presumably by human hands. And it tries to identify those threads. Source criticism has, has evolved in, a very, in very important ways. We're not going to really talk much about it now. It's not today what it was in the 1700s or the 1800s. But its basic insight remains valid. And what, in essence, it's saying to us is, put aside tradition. Put aside theology. Free yourself from all the assumptions that one usually brings to the biblical text. Approach the text with a critical mind and use all the instruments of modern scholarship at your disposal. Radical stuff. But studying the Torah today, in the book of Genesis in particular, which is our subject, also means something very different. It means going forward from the time uh, at which the Torah assumed its final form. It means looking at the Torah through the mindset of the religious authorities who studied it themselves, who considered it, who struggled with it. For these authorities, the Torah, the Pentateuch, was not only about the past, but about the present and about the future. And the, these authorities thought, well, for them, the, the Bible was divine, the word of God. It was perfect, because God is perfect. It was relevant, because God's word is the means by which we solve the problems of everyday life. And so for them, what if there were contradictions in the biblical text? There's not one story of creation, there are two. The Ten Commandments uh, appears not once, but twice, and they're different. It says that Noah <coughs> brought two kinds, two animals of each kind into the ark, but then it says it brought seven animals of each kind into the ark. What if there were things that we simply couldn't understand? It just didn't make sense. What if there were things that were troublesome or even contrary to our values? Those authorities could not talk of source criticism, as I mentioned before, of different strands of the text from different historical periods. That didn't exist when they were commenting on it. It was contrary to their worldview. For them, problems with the text could only mean we were insufficiently diligent and creative in understanding the text, that we were looking at its plain meaning but missing its symbolic meaning or its mystical meaning or its moral meaning. So what developed in the Jewish world was an interpretive tradition. That's what we're going to look at today. A tradition of commenting on the text and expanding on the text, of encouraging these commentaries, seeing them as essential, of generating this expansion of the text. This tradition produced multiple narratives about what the text might mean. And they were presented right alongside each other. For 2,000 years, until the modern period, it never occurred to Jewish authorities that the text was fragmented or incomplete or defective or was a historical document to be studied and taken apart. It was mysterious and complex, to be sure, but learning to understand it was the work of God. And our challenge as human beings was to engage in God's work. And this was true for the church fathers as well. Of course, they were dealing with the Bible as Christians understand it, which includes the uh, the New Testament and uh, uh, the Apocrypha, which is read a little differently if you're a Protestant or a Catholic, uh, they confronted the Christian authorities the same problems, a text that often didn't make sense, that wasn't consistent with their ideas. And they also developed this interpretive tradition. And like the rabbis, they had a system for understanding it. Scripture, they said, could be understood literally. That is, according to the plain sense, but since that often didn't work, it could also be understood in the allegorical sense, or the tropological sense, in the anagogical sense. Big words. 
and it simply means what you should believe, what you should do, and what you should aim for. And today I'm going to be focusing on the interpretive tradition in Judaism, so I can give you an example of what it is exactly we're talking about. And my message, to which I'll return at the end, is the interpretive tradition is little understood and little appreciated, but it's essential to understanding the Bible. In fact, more than that, it's the best bridge for modern people, whatever their religious inclination, to connect with the Bible as a living text. And specifically, I want to see how this interpretive tradition works when it comes to issues of sexual immorality, as found in the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife in Genesis chapter 39. Uh, now, this is part of the Joseph narrative, the story of Joseph, a story that you're, I would imagine, all familiar with. Unlike other stories in the Bible, it's long, 12 whole chapters. It's complicated. Uh, it has a distinctive literary quality. And for all its complications, it constitutes a single literary unit in a beginning, middle, and end. It's interesting on many levels. It's an idyllic story. It has an idealized hero, Joseph. Its message is there is a divine plan that underlines all of human existence. Even if it's not apparent at the time, that plan is ultimately going to be realized. And the plan in this case is a beneficent one, which means the good guys win. This is a story in which justice ultimately triumphs and no one really ends up the loser. Joseph's virtue is rewarded. And if he does arrange things, you know, to give his brothers a scare along the way, well, a reader most likely feels that's only justified in light of their earlier misconduct. Joseph himself is the very embodiment of wisdom and understanding. He interprets dreams. He can foretell the future. He meets adversity with patient confidence. He fights off sexual temptation and refrains from inappropriate sexual content and ultimately rejects hatred and revenge. Again, we're going to focus on, on the incident with Potiphar's wife. Um, as an aside, this is a story that's based on a folk tale. There are many such folk tales, both uh, um, in, well, throughout the Middle East. Uh, we, we find them in Egypt and elsewhere. And uh, they're very similar. And the theme is the woman is temptress. These stories usually involve two men, servant and master, or two brothers. One of the men is married, and the woman tries to tempt the other man to have sex with her. And there is there's such a tale that, that is the, the basis, really, for the Joseph story, although the Bible changes it around and, and gives it a, a particular point of view. Now, the approach of the Hebrew Bible to sex. The sexual views of the Hebrew Bible are strict on one hand, but it should be noted not identical with our own. For example, the prohibition of adultery was of central importance, but was also differently defined. At the same time, the Hebrew Bible is intensely realistic about sex. Sex is powerful, part of life. It's cloaked at times with love and beauty, but also with the power to generate violence and corruption. Biblical characters are not dismissed or disqualified uh, for committing or condoning sexual sin. If that were the case, there would be no biblical narrative. Uh, of the three patriarchs, um, we look at them and we see three times we have a story of what the wife-sister motif, which means the patriarch takes his wife, passes her off as his, uh, his sister because he faces a danger and gives her over to another man to, to, to whom, uh, with whom she might be forced to, to have sex. 
Still, in dealing with sex, there is an overall moral framework. The Bible imbues sexual attraction and sexual conduct with a moral purpose. And for women in particular, sex is joined to virtue. So in biblical culture, women using sexual wiles is not something that's seen as inherently wrong or evil. In a society where roles were clearly defined and where power rests with men, it was to be expected that women would take advantage of their sexual power. So the, the question is, what are they trying to do? If they're using it to do what was right and to uphold the norms of society, that was fine. Example is uh, the book of Ruth. And uh, Ruth at one point with Boaz, who is a, a, a part of her extended family by, by uh, marriage. And uh, she is out in the field. And Boaz lies down, and she lies down at his feet. Now, that's probably a euphemism, for she had sex with him. Um, but the point was, Boaz had an obligation that he was not fulfilling. And therefore, the Bible, as well as the Jewish tradition afterwards, looks upon Ruth in a positive way. And there are other such examples. But in our story, Mrs. Potiphar was using her sexual power to betray her husband, and therefore to undermine society and to satisfy her own desire, which was completely foreign to biblical norms. So she is judged, as we will see, very differently. And the flawed sexual nature of the Hebrew Bible, uh, figures of the Hebrew Bible, is, is contrasted in an interesting way with those of the Christian Bible. We'll say more about that a little later on. A fascinating aspect of the Joseph story is Joseph's sexual uprightness compared to many other characters, as I've said. Um, we'll look at the tradition, the interpretive tradition, this commentary, and we'll see how rabbinic authorities looked upon this fact. And the heart of the matter is this. They're uncomfortable with idyllic stories, with idealized characters, characters who are not real. They have a commitment to realism, to the complexities of life as it is actually lived. And they're always asking, is this the way people really believe? Is this the way things actually happen? And um, they bring a skeptical eye to such stories. They tend to believe that we learn more from the text when we read them in an expansive way that allows for human and realistic motives. So now what I'm going to do is I'm going to hand here. We're going to pass out these texts. We should have enough for everybody. I'm not sure. Uh, maybe we should share. as soon as you get the text, what I want you to do is read to yourself. The first two pages is we have the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. Uh, if you happen to read Hebrew, that's wonderful. But uh, um, just focus on the English on the first two pages. Read it to yourself really quickly. And then in a minute, we'll continue. The 
if we have extras over here, we'll pass, we'll bring them back. Okay, I don't know if we did too well in the back here. Did you not get copies in the back? <laughs> All right, we're going to have to soldier on as best we can. And uh, I'll read aloud uh, as, as much as I can of the text. So hopefully some of you have, uh, okay, I have some more copies coming here. That's good. What do we see here about Joseph? What kind of a person is Joseph? Uh, we see from this selection in Genesis 39, a number of things about him. He's a person of great managerial skill. Second of all, he's a person of sexual restraint. His rejection of his mistress's adulterous proposals. Third of all, his steadfastness in the face of adversity. When wrongly accused, he plummets from a position of power and authority to the depths of a dreary presence cell. All this is pretty interesting because up to this point, what do we know about Joseph? What we know is he's a spoiled, self-absorbed teenager. Remember the dreams and uh, um, lording it over his brothers, and he's self-important, he's dismissive towards his siblings, what we see here is the emergence of another Joseph, Joseph as leader. And having said that, there's one particular virtue with which Joseph is associated in the Jewish interpretive tradition in this commentary as we talked about that. So look at page three here. And here I have a listing of passages, not from the Bible itself, but from these commentaries that I referred to. Uh, the first one is from 4 Maccabees, which is a a text from the second century BC before Christ and this text says it is for this reason certainly that the temperate Joseph is praised because by mental effort he overcame sexual desire 
For when he was young and in his prime, by his reason he nullified the frenzy of his passions. Not only is reason proved to rule over the frenzied urge of sexual desire, but also over every desire. Joseph is seen here as the model in the tradition of sexual restraint. Major biblical uh, figures all, all had some kind of title attached to them for Joseph. It's Yosef at Sadiq, Joseph the Righteous, Joseph the Virtuous. And from sources, commentaries such as this one, we know that this applied primarily to his sexual virtue. Now, would you keep in mind that the subject of adultery was very much in the air at the time that this source was composed? We see it in the New Testament that came not terribly long after the book of Maccabees, from which this comes. And we should ask, you know, what, what other figures in the Hebrew Bible come to mind when we think of sexual restraint? Really, nobody, at least not in quite this way, which doesn't mean that they were all promiscuous. It just means the subject didn't come up uh, in quite this way, and it wasn't the focus of the attention of tradition. But with Joseph, we have a specific, simple, self-contained story that emphasizes his sexual virtue. Now we turn to the question, what actually happened in Potiphar's house? He had been, Joseph had been sold into slavery. He had been sold to the captain of, uh, of uh, Pharaoh's guard. And um, his Pharaoh's, the, the, the name of the master of the house was Potiphar. And the issue is Potiphar's uh, wife. Now we're going to look uh, at our text in verses 13 through 18. And it came to pass, when she, being Potiphar's wife, saw that he had left his garment in her hand and was fled forth, that she called unto the men of the house, or the people of the house, and spoke unto them, saying, See, he hath brought in a Hebrew unto us to mock us. He came in unto me. This is after she has tried to seduce him. He came in unto me to lie with me, and I cried with a loud voice. And it came to pass, when he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried, that he left his garment by me and fled and got him out. And she laid up his garment by her until his master came home, and she spoke unto him according to these words, The Hebrew servant whom thou hast brought unto me came in unto me to mock me. And it came to pass, as I lifted up my voice and cried, that he left his garment by me and fled out. So it's interesting here that we have two stories. We have the story, first of all, that Potiphar's wife told to the Anshehabai, to the people of the house, or the men of the house. And then we have a second story that Potiphar's wife told to her husband, to Potiphar, describing the same incident. How are those stories different? Is there anything that you saw that was different in the second version that we didn't see in the first version? Any thoughts? Exactly. Very good. Um, in the first version, said he brought in a Hebrew, 
let's assume the people of the house are slaves. So in speaking to the slaves and telling the story, doesn't mention a Hebrew slaves. He brought in a Hebrew. Doesn't want to talk about slaves because these men are slaves. They probably would identify with a fellow slave. So therefore, she doesn't say anything about that. She simply identifies him as a Hebrew. And because they're Egyptians, she assumes that there will be this tension between Egyptians and Hebrews, that they would have the sense of superiority to a foreigner, and that therefore they would take her side. Uh, and also, in speaking to the people of the house, the men of the house, she said, Come and he came here. My husband brought him here to mock us. And when talking to her husband, she says, to mock me. So once again, he's fomenting this difference, this national antagonism, uh, by saying to the, the Egyptian slaves, his very presence here is an affront to us. He came to mock us. Um, now, also, it's interesting. She called together these men of the house and told her story. But it, it said just before in verse 11 that there was nobody in the house. We just read in verse 11 that Joseph came to work. There was nobody in the house. Then she tries to seduce him. And then we have you know, this, this, uh, this incident where she calls in the, the slaves and so on. And the problem is, where did these people come from? A second uh, before, we had heard that they weren't there at all. Um, and the answer to this we find in another commentary, another part of this interpretive tradition. Number two on your sheets, this is the third page. This is a bit long. I want you to read it through on your own quickly. Here, people of the house refers not to the slaves, but in this commentary refers to a group of noble women who perhaps lived there in some kind of extended household. And in this version, the meeting with these, these women, these ladies, does not occur immediately. It says it came to pass in verse 13, so it came after a while. She apparently, Potiphar's wife, according to this commentary, gathered these women together. And in verse 14, when she says, see, See here means literally the women are physically looking at Joseph. So what is happening here? She's angry, but she feels she can't accuse Joseph alone or she will not be believed. She's angry. She tried to seduce him, and he has refused uh, to have sex with her. So according to this commentary we read, the women say to her, have you perchance been fancying that servant of yours? 
What does this suggest? This suggests that the word is out that these women know what he's been thinking. That perhaps her husband has even heard that she has her eyes on him. So she wants support and decides not to rely on a verbal appeal, but an actual appearance by Joseph to demonstrate how great the temptation is. And what happens then? He is so beautiful, so beautiful that they cut their hands because they're distracted. While they're cutting food, they cut their hands because they are distracted by his great beauty. Now let's go back to verses 4 to 6. And let's look at this issue of beauty. And Joseph found favor in his sight, and he ministered unto him, and he appointed him, this is Potiphar, uh, uh, the master of the house, and he appointed him overseer over his house, and so on, and it came to pass from the time that he appointed him overseer in his house and over all that he had, that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake, and the blessing of the Lord was upon all that he had in the house and in the field. And he left all that he had in Joseph's hands, and having him he knew not aught save the bread which he did eat, and Joseph was of beautiful form and fair to look upon. Joseph was of beautiful form. This is a very strange passage. Reference to beauty seems completely out of context and very unusual for the Hebrew Bible. No one else with the possible exception of King David is so described. And how does it relate to what comes before? What's the connection with bread? And what does the reference to bread even mean? Now it, it says in verse four that Joseph's in charge of the household. And then it says it again in verse five. And then it says it again in, in verse six. So we see Joseph is in charge of everything. And therefore Potiphar knows nothing of the household except the bread that Potiphar ate. What kind of an exception is this? Joseph handles everything, but Potiphar makes his own lunch? Any, what, what could this possibly mean? According to another source that I, I didn't print out for you, it says, bread is a euphemism. In Hebrew, lashon naki, and a euphemism for what? For Mrs. Potiphar herself. That is, Joseph is in charge of everything save for Potiphar's own wife. Now, all this is delightful, but we're still left with the question, why does this have to be said at all? When a servant is put in charge of the household, would anyone think that this includes access to the master's wife? Why in heaven's name would the master find it necessary to mention this? The answer comes in the next verse, and Joseph was fair to look upon. That is, Joseph had extraordinary good looks. This was apparent to everyone, including Potiphar, who could not help think the impact this might have on his wife. So presumably, he knew also his own wife and maybe what, what her conduct was like. So we now can better understand Potiphar saying to Joseph, you do this and this, you are in charge of everything, but keep your hands off of my wife. Now, until now, our texts have seen Joseph as a righteous innocent. And we'll now begin to see another set of possibilities. Is there not something jarringly unreal about this story? In fact, there, there's another commentary, uh, again, I didn't print it out here, where a matron says to a great rabbi that 
she doubts the whole validity of the Torah, of all of Jewish teachings. Why? It can't possibly be true and authentic, she says. Why, the rabbi wants to know. And he answers, because no 17-year-old boy could possibly be so good and restrained and righteous as Joseph was in this story. or not, but let's, let's, we come now to the seduction itself. Verse 11, and it came to pass on a certain day when he went into the house to do his work, uh, first of all, to do his work, that's interesting, what is his work? Um, once again, there's a suggestion in, in some of the commentaries that maybe this is a euphemism too, maybe Joseph had it in his mind that he was interested in Potiphar's wife. Um, and there was none of the men of the house there within. Now this is interesting. No one was in the house. How could that be? We're dealing here with a high official in the court of Pharaoh. Such a home would be teeming with servants. Is it possible not a single person, not a cook or a butler or a slave or a retainer would be there? This had to be planned in advance. Perhaps this had been planned by Mrs. Potiphar, but then again, perhaps it would be planned by her and by Joseph. And what raises our suspicions? Verse 12, that she caught him by his garment, saying, lie with me, and he left his garment in her hand and fled and got him out. What garment? What garment? What does this refer to? For modern readers, we think of expendable garments that can be easily removed, uh, neckties and vests and pocket handkerchiefs and jackets. But as we know from scholars of the period, such garments didn't exist in the biblical era in the Middle East. A beged, the Hebrew word for garment that's used here, refers to a one-piece garment that covered the whole body. It was far too expensive to sew a series of separate garments for people. There didn't have people sitting together at sewing machines putting this stuff together. So there was a single garment. So here's the question. How exactly did Joseph's garment get into Mrs. Potiphar's hand? In her passion, did she somehow rip it all off with one sweep of her hand? Doesn't seem likely. It also raises the interesting question of how I managed to get out of the house. We'll put that aside. So what are the possibilities here? Again, let's go to page three, number four. And we have another commentary that offers a possible answer. Rabbi Yehuda said, that day was the day of sacrificing to the Nile, and they all went out. This explains why there was no one in the house. And refers to their probable planning. And she alone was left, and he along with her in the house, and she seized him by his garment, and he went into bed with her. So here we have a commentary that says, oh, come on. You're really suggesting in, the, in this text that somehow he was able to restrain himself and wasn't tempted and wasn't drawn into bed by a woman who was so brazen? So this commentary says no. And it's, it's suggesting he sheds his clothes willingly the actions in verse 12 happen sequentially, but not necessarily f following each other immediately. 
She caught him by the garment, asked him to lie with her. He takes off his clothes and gets into bed. Then, for some reason, he flees before having sex, leaving the garment in her hand. Now, that's an interesting scenario. <coughs> having gone that far, what possibly could lead him at that point to back away? So one more, um, one more commentary. And this is number five. It's rather long. I want you to just to look at the final four lines. There's a little arrow there. He's in bed. He's taken off his garment. He's been almost seduced by Mrs. Potiphar. And then the rabbinical commentary, trying to think through what might be happening in his mind, offers this. At that moment, the image of his father entered and appeared to him in the window. He said to him, Joseph, your brothers are destined to have their names written on the priestly breastplate, and yours is amongst theirs. Do you want it to be erased and yourself to be called a shepherd of prostitutes? As it says, giving a quote from Proverbs, a shepherd of prostitutes loses his wealth. At once his bow remained in strength, that is, he overcame his desires. Um, in other words, he's sitting there in bed, naked, and he has a vision. An image of his father appears to him. The verse quoted is not given in its entirety. Uh, the, the verse is, a man who loves wisdom brings joy to his father, but a shepherd of prostitutes, that is one who keeps company with prostitutes, will lose his wealth. Jacob, his father, in this image that appears to him, calls his son back to his senses by saying, do the right thing and you will please your father. And as for the second part of the verse, we've already seen that Mrs. Potiphar is a woman of, uh, woman of meager virtue. So it's not too much of an exaggeration to suggest that he goes through with this liaison, that if he, he goes through with this liaison with her, he'll be seen as a shepherd of prostitutes. And what of the reference to losing his wealth? It might have been suggested by Jacob that if Joseph does this, he'll be cut out of his father's will and lose his money. But instead, his father, in this vision, refers to his spiritual legacy. On the priestly breastplate, there are 12 precious stones corresponding to the 12 tribes of Israel. So Jacob is telling him, if he becomes a shepherd of prostitutes, he'll be excluded from those who get precious stones assigned to them on the priestly breastplate. This speech is enough to bring Joseph back to his senses and enables him to resist Mrs. Potiphar's temptations. Uh, let's remember here, I mean, this may seem incredible on a certain level. I mean, it is, the whole thing's incredible. But remember that jo Joseph was the favorite son. As the favorite son, he undoubtedly spent a lot of time with his father, got to know his father, heard his father's wisdom, studied with his father. So it's perhaps not too far-fetched to imagine that at this point, as he's about to do something that he knows to be wrong, the memory of his father's teaching returns and the image of his father's face appears before him. We teach our children lessons. We often think that nothing's getting through, but sometimes we plant seeds that at a later time, at a time of mortal sort of testing, bear fruit. So even Joseph, a mere 17, a boy suddenly elevated to a high place in Egyptian society, 
a self-absorbed, self-important favorite child of an elderly father, a boy who succumbs to the wiles of his high-born Egyptian mistress, even he can be summoned back to decency by the memories of a father who had once taught him what is right and what is just and what his people and his God require of him. Now, let's wrap this up. First of all, what conclusions can we draw? As we stated in the Hebrew Bible, God has clear expectations of us when it comes to sexual conduct, but in the interpretive tradition that develops around it, the sexual inclination is recognized as stubborn and strong. And as this tradition presents such matters, it's best to review the sexual urge with sobering realism and to recognize that no one, including kings and patriarchs, is exempt from its powerful pull, so much so that when pure virtue is depicted in a biblical narrative, the interpretive tradition says, this isn't the way it is, this isn't how it works. And now, a second conclusion. This will finish. How do we read the Hebrew Bible today or the biblical text? Um, there are different approaches one can take. One is an approach of pure reason and rationality. We rely on science while excluding tradition, whether Jewish or Christian, so that we can exclude the errors that traditional religion inevitably brings. We insist on truth, the truth of science and modern scholarship. A second approach is we embrace fundamentalism. Fundamentalism came into being in the early 20th century as a reaction to approach number one. It insisted on the inerrancy of the Bible, that is that every word of the Bible is true as written. <coughs> Third, we read the Bible neither from the perspective of modern scholarship nor as a volume of inerrant truth, but as a work of literature, a volume that expresses truth but not the truth of science or tradition but the truth of art. In this view, the Bible is a great book to be read like other great books. I'm suggesting a fourth approach, different from all three. I'm suggesting that if modern people are to take the Bible seriously, they should approach it through an interpretive tradition. For some, the starting point will be the interpretive tradition of Judaism. If you're Jewish, you've gotten a taste of that today. For some, the interpretive tradition of Christianity. And there is a rich interpretive tradition of the church fathers that does this kind of thing, but from a Christian perspective. And for some, they will draw from the work of others and perhaps develop an interpretive tradition of their own. Because I think the great book's approach is not enough. The Bible is more than simply a work of literature. Because fundamentalism requires us to reject science and history and scholarship, which for most of us is impossible and unthinkable. And because reason is essential, very important, but again, in my view, in some ways, inadequate to the task. Reason is the pillar on which all of modern life is constructed, but ultimately it can't explain to us the power of the Bible and the history of humankind. No matter how much we may know about the origins of the text and the process of its construction, that ultimately cannot explain its moral power, the indefinable essence that's made it the greatest book of all human history. And this is what the interpretive tradition helps us to do it allows us to see the text in all of its richness, in all of its tantalizing moral complexity. And it encourages us to wrestle with the hardest questions that it poses. It allows us to discover the relevance of the text and to add a relevance of our own. It's not troubled by different versions or by conflicting versions. It allows us to account for the religious character of the biblical text, to see it as a religious book. Now, 
But those who argue that, in fact, none of this can really work if we don't have the same theological commitments of the people who wrote these commentaries. That's a fair point. But what if we, we don't have those, those beliefs? I want to suggest that that possibility may not be true. In other words, the interpretive tradition allows us to be open to the religious message of the Bible, whether or not we are believers in the traditional, se in traditional sense, whether as Christians or as Jews or members of another religion. In fact, whether or not we are believers at all. It allows us, I think, to do what Jews and Christians have always done and are doing today in churches and in synagogues and universities throughout the country, and that is to struggle with the text as educated, scientifically literate people. 